So in Morat's example, it sounds like you almost don't want Triple J to play her or didn't want her, didn't want her to play. <sighs> yeah. Really. Which is really interesting. And it's not Triple, Triple J's fault. They hear a great song, they see a great artist, and it's local, hallelujah. And they go after it, and it reacted, and it nailed. And we're sitting over in, like, you know, America going, off oh, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of the entertainment, tech, and media industry to learn about their successes, mistakes, and how they operate at the top of their class. Welcome to Fear at the Top with the Industry Observer. This is Luke Gerges, and today I am fortunate to be with Terry McBride, the CEO of Network Group, which is a record company, a publishing business, and a management company. 170 million albums are worldwide sold. Uh, we actually still talk about albums. Well, this is the thing: is it is it uh, is it are they is this figure record equivalents or is it <laughs> the records? I think that figure is like 10 years old when like the figures of of albums actually meant something. Now, yeah, what is 170 million albums like? What does that represent now? Yeah, when like you, when 17 billion streams or 170 billion streams. I don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, publishers love it. Regardless, it is extremely impressive. You've got offices all around the world, and your business model, particularly on the record label side, is extremely unique, especially when you compare it to the major labels. And that's what we're going to unpack today. But before we do that, Terry, thank you for for your time today, and just tell us how it all started for you. Well, Mark and I co-founded the company in uh, September of 1984 with a really simple mantra, to release music we love. And it was really that simple because back then, um, funny enough, everything was vinyl. And funny enough, now everything's vinyl. (laughs) And we couldn't get the music that we loved unless we went to an import store and paid a stupid amount of money to get something that wasn't, you know, at that point released domestically with inside our country. And we didn't listen to the radio because what we heard on the radio we didn't like. So, you know, being too naive, you know, 20 year olds, we decided to start a record company and didn't have a clue what we were doing, which was probably the best thing because we weren't in a box mm-hmm. where everybody else who was in the business was in a box. and. I was constantly told by people back in Toronto, which is the music hub of Canada, that we would fail. Well, every time we were told that we would fail, it's like someone threw another you know, piece of wood on the fire. <laughs> and, how, and how many moments in those early days did you think, oh, fuck, we're failing now and we're probably going to end it? I um, didn't think that way. I guess we had blinders on. But by the same token, I mean, for the first 10 years, Mark and I worked other jobs. Mm. You know, the, the, you know, the label was first thing in the morning. It was lunchtime and evenings to the early hours of the morning and weekends. That's what it was. <laughs> and all the money we made from our other jobs that didn't go towards rent and food went into the business. Mm. So for the first ten years, in all honesty, we would have done better if we were on, you know, if we were on the dole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we look back on it, the amount of money that we, you know, paid ourselves over that ten years was like crazy. It was, it was like, how do we survive? Yeah. And how old were we then? We started when we were 20. Yeah. From there, you went into management, right? I was kind of forced into management because we, you know, signed three artists and quickly found out that they were more than happy to stay home, get stoned, hang out with their friends, create music, but not get off their asses or do anything. 
And back then, we weren't getting radio, so the only way that we were going to sell something physical like vinyl was if the bands played live. So I had no choice but to turn into a promoter, manager, agent, which is what all young managers essentially do. And I even didn't call myself a manager for the first couple of years. I was just doing what we could in order to try and sell the records. Mm. So did you have a sophisticated model, business model around that time? Did you develop, I'm going to set up the deals this way and whatever, or did you just kind of fucking wing it? No, we like, you know, bought some book on, you know, how a record contract should look. And mm. we bought another one on how a publishing contract could look. And we literally, Mark luckily could type up, you know, 120 words a minute. <laughs> he typed up yeah. these contracts and we put in a name and <laughs> that's how we did it. Awesome. So one of your one of the funniest stories or most interesting stories that I've heard from you when you managed Avril Lavigne um, was when all the record companies were trying to sign her, and I think you said you were walking around as a kid on a skateboard around London. Um, tell us that story because I, I I find it so interesting. Well, what everybody tried to do with Avril is to tell her how she should be. I'm sorry, but you cannot tell a 16 year old female how she should be. So they're all like, you need, you need me to train, you need to do this, you need to do that. And I'm like, you need to just to leave her alone. I said, you need to come to a show and you need to see the audience. Because you're going to find out that they're acting the exact same way as she is. <laughs> so this is a generational thing. So if you tell her that she should do that, she would do completely the absolute opposite. And as she should. So you want her to be a Britney Spears. She's not a Britney Spears. She's the exact opposite of it. And guess what? There's, there's you know, to sort of quote Queen, there's millions of misfits. Mm. And she hit a chord in a generation across multicultures of kids that felt like they weren't being heard, that weren't being allowed to be themselves. And she nailed it. So she was more interested in doing stuff that she, that she shouldn't do. And, you know, I had a simple uh, agreement with her. Tell me everything you're doing, and I won't tell your mom. <laughs> and then, mom, you can only talk to your daughter as mother to daughter. You cannot get involved in the rest. I said, if we can live by that, this is going to be a great situation where you get to have a daughter and she gets to have a career. So you're, you're a young manager. How old were you at that time? Oh, by then I was much older. By then I was in my probably late 30s. Okay, all right. I knew what I was doing. And were you, yeah, so, so I'm just thinking now, like if you've got a young manager who is in a scenario that way where all the, you know, more senior experienced people around the world are saying, you need to do this move, you need to do that move, it can be quite intimidating for a manager. What, 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 what's your advice in that scenario? Follow your intuition. I mean, I can, you know, I can remember the first marketing meeting with, you know, Arista, walking in, you know, the massive boardroom, 100 people around the freaking boardroom, the marketing plan was like three inches thick. And they're like, this is what we're going to do. And I listened, I listened, I listened, and then at some point I got up, I took my marketing plan, and I threw it in the garbage can. <laughs> I said, you need to throw out this plan, because what you've described is not who your artist is. I said, you need to understand who she is so that you can market it properly. And I said, it's not that I don't think that your plan's not 
not good. Your plan's probably good for some other artist, but not this artist. And that was my intuition screaming. Because mm. there was a lot of people in that room who I truly respected, but they simply weren't getting it. Mm. Tell me about your record label, Terry. This is, this is what's got to spend the whole, you know, this, we can spend, we're going to spend weeks on this thing. So I want to understand exactly the cornerstone of the record label. What is, the, what is it that you have that no other label has? I think the fact that it's a musical palette of Mark and myself. And it's been that for 35 years. So you have a consistency in what we do, in what we sign, and how we do it. Find that at any label, and the chances are you won't. There's an honesty in the conversation with the artist. We have a simple principle. Do we love the music? Check. Do we think we can add value? Check. If we don't think, if we love the artist but we can't add value, X. Don't. Don't how, do the what, deal. How, how often does that scenario happen? Quite often. Give me an example. It could be a musical genre that we don't really live in. So it could be a hip hop song that we think is brilliant or a country song that we think is brilliant. We're not the right people. The only time that we've even tickled country would be uh, Old Crow Medicine Show. Mm. They had a song called Wagon Wheel. Mm. And we're like, this song's a hit. And it's so good that actually we can take it down this avenue, even though really it should go through this avenue. And they became the alternative to what country was. Mm. And that song has sold millions. And it's an anthem. And, you know, the band was playing 5,000 and 10,000 seat venues. And they were, they ended up being the alternative youth movement of country. But that's one of the rare times that we stepped away from that do we think we can add value conversation. Because if we, if we love it, but we're not the right fit, all that's going to do is down the road bring friction between us and the artist. And I never want to be in that situation. It's, it's not a fun situation to be in. So why, why would I do that for the sake of my ego? So it, it surprises me to hear that um, you would deem an artist not fit for your label based on their genre because I want, I want you to first explain how you market and exploit masters. Mm -hmm. um, because to me, once when I hear that system, it feels like it would apply to everything. No, it's, it's, we market based on community. And communities used to be a city, then they used to be a country, and now it's a flat world. So when we started in Vancouver, we signed with inside the musical community that we were in, that we understood that we had passion for. Um, as we grew and got bigger, we signed based on the sort of country that we sat in. Well, now, you know, the internet does not recognize borders. And as such, a community that could be niche in one country could be niche in 30 others, but now it's valid because it's big enough. It's kind of like the, net, it's like, it's like the Netflix model, right? So we market with inside a community. And it's usually a community of music that we love. And the basis of network is singer-songwriter. Now you can dress those songs in 80 different ways. But if you're gonna dress it as speed metal, we're not, we're not the right label because that's not the music that we listen to. Mm. But that same song can be you know, dressed as a rock song. It can be dressed as a 
as an indie pop song, as a bedroom song, as a folk song. Okay, if we love it and we're in that community, we can probably add value to it. So that's kind of how we come at it because it's, I've got to be able to look the artist in the eye and say, I can honestly add value to your career. And that's why you should sign with us. Mm. If I can't say it, I'd rather just be a fan. <laughs> it, that makes life so much easier. Mm. So tell me about how you do that though. It's a flat world. How are you marketing these artists? We, we, our focus is on the amplification of community through, through the algorithms with inside streaming. It's from our perspective, we have some influence upon editorial, but that's purely based on long-term relationships. When, you know, companies editorial like... Editorial being the, the curated playlists. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, Spotify's done their, their best in that system to, to, like, limit that because it was becoming um, unfathomable for the curators to deal with the amount of stuff that was being thrown at them, right? Um, even, you know, so editorial we have, a, we have some effect on, but not a lot of effect on. Obviously, the sort of organic streams, which are the streams that people save to their, you know, to their own playlists and share with their friends, that's the ultimate goal, frankly. It's the algorithmic part that's really interesting to us because that's the part that's amplified by the community that you sit in. So if you're a community of 20 artists and you all have a similar sound and, a, and, and there's a community of fans around you, what happens is that the actions of the community have a more profound effect upon the success of your music than what you actually realize. And it's wild to watch it. You can have an artist, they could release some amazing songs, find themselves in a community of like-minded artists. That artist can go away and surf for nine months. And if the other artists within that community are super active, the artists that went away for nine months, their streams are going to rise too. Yeah, right. Because the community's rising. Mm. The community's growing. Mm. And the community is supporting them, you know, themselves. And we've seen it with Inside the Data and, and, and in examples. I mean, we had one artist called The Man, the man Who, who released two songs, then did nothing for a year. In their community, there wasn't one artist that had more than five or 10,000 followers. But every single one of those artists was releasing music every six to eight to 10 weeks. So what was happening, there was two to three songs being released every single week. Mm. And that drove the algorithms of the whole community to the point that man who was doing a million streams a week and they weren't doing anything. <laughs> they hadn't played a live show, but they had written two songs which struck a chord with inside this community. And it was a growing and active community. So streaming's so different than like anything else. I mean, you've got big established bands that I would say are associated to communities that are effectively dead. Mm. You know, the artists no longer release new music, they just tour. And can I just, I just want to clarify this community word in, in a streaming world. So if you've got a band like, I don't know, say, say a, a local rapper, and yep. there's about 20 local rappers in Western Sydney, mm -hmm. um, will the algorithm connect all those bands, those artists together, because they all seem to have this, even though it's a small base, all that, that small base seems to listen to all those rappers together and therefore they're linked within the Spotify algorithm. Is that what you're talking about? Yes and no. 
there's three buckets that we believe form the basis of the algorithm. Um, one is sonic. So if you've been doing a certain style of music and then you decide to be different because you're not having as much success as like what you like, the the sonic algorithm part of it will stop your new music from being served to the existing community that you're a part of. So if you go from being a folk artist to doing a speed metal album because you like it, no one in your existing community is going to hear that song. The, the algorithm will stop it. So the first part's the sonics. Mm -hmm. The second part is the social scraping. So it's out there scraping to see what bands are related to what bands within inside the blog sphere, within inside the media, within inside the Instagrams, within inside TikTok, within inside whatever it is. So it's the social scraping. The most important part of the algorithm is the fans like part. If there's three songs that I like, or three artists that I like, and you like two of the same artists, the algorithm is going to send the third artist to you with inside your daily mix or your Discover Weekly. It won't send the same songs. It will look at the sonics of what you listen to. So let's just say it's a singer or a songwriter. Some do eight sad songs and two up-tempo songs because they fell in love and then three weeks later the girl broke up with them so they're back to, to being grumpy and rainy day feel, right? Mm -hmm. I might like the rainy day feel. You might not like rainy day music. You like the more up-tempo parts. And so with that artist, even though I'm listening to the rainy day stuff, it'll service you in the algorithms, the same artist, but the up-tempo song. Mm. So it's not about songs, it's about a community. And that's why it's sometimes hard to disseminate what the algorithms are doing. But when you dig into the data and you begin to look with clarity, you begin to see exactly what's happening. That's the most powerful part of the algorithm. So if those 20 rappers or 10 rappers all sonically fit and all are kind of doing the same sort of thing, they're going to create a snowball effect. With the more that they do, the snowball is going to roll down the hill and as it does, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're going to create themselves a community, they're going to create themselves a living. Mm. And they're going to create a scene. That's what's going to happen. But if they like, oh, I really want to be like that guy in like America or this guy here, and they change their sound, the algorithms might slowly but surely move them out of the actual community. Mm. So you're a global business based out of Canada, and you've signed 17, I think, Australian artists? Apparently, I was told as I arrived, it's now 20. 20. So hearing you talk about the algorithm that way makes me feel like you signing a lot of Australian artists is almost a way of you influencing communities as well as the individual artists. Yes and no. Yes in the, in the like sense that when you look at the artists that we sign and the strategy behind it, it's not Australian based, it's community based. If you look at some, I could, I, I'll just name two Aussie artists that no one here knows about. Harrison Storm and Hollow Coves. Each artist does approximately 50 to 60 million streams a year. Unknown here. Wow. Their related community is like the United Nations. Mm. So they're related to similar artists of similar size in Germany, Holland, England, Canada, US. Now they're starting to have some traction here. Now they're getting associated to similar artists within inside their own country. But their related field is international. It means that their music travels the world. So when we go to sign artists, what we, what we do is we actually call it mapping. We map the community and then we 
then pull out the bands that are already signed, leaving a map of the bands that aren't signed yet. And then we look at their connectivity to our own artists. Because we know that our own artists can also really benefit those artists and vice, and vice versa. At that point, we come up with a list. Then we go listen to the music. And then it comes down to the music. Mm. And we don't like the music, check, 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 no, 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 no. And we hear it when we go, yes. And then when we do that, then we, we don't map it from the point of view of our community. Then we go into their community and we remap it to see whether there's pathways to take that artist to other communities out of the country that they sit in. And when I did my keynote yesterday, that's exactly what I did. I started off with Australia. I expanded it to the worldwide community. Then I took out the signed artists and then I shrunk it back to Australia. And that showed me the 25 artists that maybe we should look at here. Mm. Doesn't mean we'll make 25 offers, we might make two or like three offers. Mm. But let's say that we decide to go sign an artist that's not in the community because the music is so frickin' good and we like call it the passion signing. Mm. And we'll do one out of 10 or one out of 20 passion signings. Then we do a deep dive into that artist's community see whether we can connect it to other communities elsewhere, but then look at who else within their direct sphere is not signed. So when we go to sign a passion play, we don't sign one artist, we make offers to three to five artists. Mm. So that we can create a, an amplifying loop within inside the algorithms which benefits all five artists. So, you know, Malrat yeah. is directly connected to Alex the Astronaut, directly connected to Jack River and we believe that we can get them out of this country. Mallrat's far more difficult because of the huge support from Triple J has effectively geo-like geo blocked them to an Aussie-only community. Mm. And Grace really needs to snap out of that. And it's, and it's even though about 70% of her streams are now coming ex-Australia, the initial bonding was so big and so tight here we're having, you know, we're really having to push hard to get her out of this country, which is, you know, fascinating to me. Which, you know, which, which like shows that in your first eighteen months of a new artist, you need to have a strategy, because if you get them geo-blocked into a country, it's incredibly difficult to get them out of that country. Now, if you're geo-blocked in the UK or geo-blocked in, you know, America, where the population base is so much bigger, then your opportunity is bigger. Mm. But if you're geo-blocked with inside. Australia, which is what, three to five percent of the total English-speaking population, then that's your opportunity. Mm. And, so, and, so, and, and that's really challenging. So in Morat's example, it sounds like you almost don't want Triple J to play her, or didn't want her, didn't want her to play her. <sighs> Yeah. Really? Which is really interesting, and it's not Triple, Triple J's fault. They hear a great song, they see a great artist, and it's local, hallelujah. And they go after it, and it reacted, and it nailed. And we're sitting over in like, you know, America going, oh, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> and then, okay, you know, our like path with, you know, Grace is we wanted to be an left of center alternative artist. We don't want it to be rock, we don't want it to be pop. We, we want the lyric and the message of who she's talking to to become clear and spread. So we actually took it to alternative radio. And it's, going, it's a song that should never be on alternative radio. And we took it top 20. Mm. And we're spreading it. 
and that's why these sort of streams are shifting out. It's not it's not that they're not growing in Australia; they're actually going up, but they're going up everywhere else faster. But still, we haven't been able to move the community yet. Mm. So, what, what's your advice then for Australia? Because because here in Australia, <laughs> don't get at it the triple J right away. Earn it. That's that sounds absurd. I know, and and you like should have heard the gaffes in the audience yesterday when when I went. If you get added to Triple J in the first eighteen months of your career, you will be geo-blocked with inside the algorithms to this country. And for a long-term strategy, not good news. Because that shouldn't happen. Because your community does not only exist here; it exists in every freaking country in the world. If you're a bedroom artist or a coffee house artist, there's a playlist that's relevant to you in every single country. It might, it, might, it might be spelled differently, but it's the same crowd. And you should be able to get to those people. But the algorithms won't send you there because you've, geo, you've accidentally geo-blocked yourself in. Now, maybe if one artist in your community goes nuclear, such as what Tones is, then that might drag the rest of the community behind you. Mm. But how often does that happen? It just once every few years. Mm. That's not good odds. And that's frankly not smart strategy. So Australia's got a problem. You have a very powerful curator who can make or break careers with inside this country. But if they make a career too early, in my view, it has a negative effect upon the rest of the world. Well, isn't that an interesting situation? I would call it a luxury problem. So the Australians have a luxury problem. And it's something that managers, as they learn how all of this works, are going to have to wrap their heads around what to do. And Triple J should not be the first part of the equation. It should be part of the equation for sure, absolutely, but at a strategic time. It's like kind of like if, if, if like a radio station adds an artist too early, and then the artist is not really good live. Like the manager and the artist should have gone and bust or done a hundred shows where no one could see them and earn the right to get that radio ad, not only based on the song, but based on the fact that they're real and they're authentic. And that's a luxury problem that you have in this country now because the algorithms will geo-block you. And that's, to me, utterly fascinating. Mm. And it's a situation that's kind of unique to here. Nowhere else in the world? There's no, nowhere else is there an alternative freeform-leaning radio station that dominates a whole country of like this size. I mean, there's, there's like Studio Brussels in Belgium, there's 3FM in the Netherlands. And those are very prominent, very powerful stations, but they're in countries that have five million people. Have you, have you discovered an artist that you absolutely love, that Triple J flog, that you just think it's been fucked. I can't sign it because of that geo-blocking of Triple J's no. support. No, because we, I mean, ultimately, I mean, we we signed Mara long before she got on Triple J. Just, it was that, it was that passion signing, mm. right? And, you know, Grace has been over to America more times than I can, than I can like think. She's putting in the work. So she'll actually get out of it. But we will map an artist and we'll go deep into the map and we'll see whether there's pathways. And if there's pathways, Triple J can keep pounding, can keep supporting it. Given our passion and our expertise, at the end of the day, we'll get the artists out of this country. Hmm. But how many 
companies actually have that knowledge and expertise and the people on the ground in 20 other countries speaking the you know native language in order to accommodate that type of strategy. Mm. I mean, the majors do, but the majors aren't focused on that. A lot of independent record labels simply don't have that structure. They might have it with inside one or two countries. They don't have it in a flat world point of view. How do you guys do the mapping in your office? We have three people that map it, and they can map it by the followers. They can map it by um, the you know streams. Do you have software? Do yeah. You, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it proprietary or is it licensed? It, no, it's ours. Yeah. Right. And we scrape it and then we debate. Like every Tuesday at 11 a.m., the Analex team wanders into my office and we debate what we're looking at. <laughs> and we're never 100% right, which is great. As then we never we never like sandbox. It's like mm. it's never a clean argument. And the great thing about the algorithms is that they're always moving. So it's kind of like at a carnival and you're like trying to shoot the duck, but the duck is going up, going 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 up and down. So you have to shoot be as the duck's coming up, or you're not going to hit it mm. because the algorithms move. Mm. They move every single week. So how we mapped it nine weeks ago is going to be completely different to what it is today. In most cases, it might only shift by one or like two artists. In some, in like some cases, it might shift by half the by half the by half the community. And we've had artists that started in one community, and eighteen months later, are in a much bigger community with no one from the initial twenty odd artists related to it at all, because the artist has grown up and moved on and moved into other territories. So it's a moving target. In terms of your the value of your business, then. I'm just thinking exit strategy here. Is the IP that you've developed in-house to do this, which is seems to be, a, you've actually built a gold mine and now you're digging on it, it seems. Yep. That, that's the technology it seems like you uh, have. That's a very black and white way of putting it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so how has one of the majors not just given you a ridiculous offer? I mean, I assume they have their own. I, I, have, I, have, I have no interest. Mark and I want a legacy for this company. Yeah. So we're like setting it up that there's a future generation under us who, at, who will at some point take these reins. We're ultimately going to turn network into a form of a real estate read or some sort of dividend fund where there's an operating entity that after the intellectual property has matured will move into the fund, but it's all marketed, directed, and, ad, and administered by network. And that will allow a, all of my staff that have shares with inside the company an opportunity to benefit from their work beyond their actual salaries. And even some artists get options too. And it'll allow Mark and I to allow the company to go on forever because it, it, it won't need a check from a major label. And the founders and shareholders won't need a check from a major label. You know, we've done this for 35 years. Why would I want to sell it? Is like Martin ever going to sell uh, beggars or would Kenny ever sell Pius again? No way. We're just music people. We can't do that. Kenny like did it once, and then luckily, eight years later, was able to buy it back at fifty cents on the like dollar. Would he sell it now? <laughs> Not a chance. So, have you entertained those conversations at all? Have you people people knock on the door. Bankers knock on the door. We have a great banker that you know when we when we sold most of our publishing to Cobalt to focus on masters to focus on their record label. He's a great banker. He's like, you know, you know, you can get this and that. And, and I said, and you know, I have no interest. Yeah. He said, that's what I love about you. <laughs> <laughs>
So, and, and funny enough, even my you know, bankers and finance people think that the dividend fund and the value that we'll create and the legacy that we'll create from that is awesome. Mm. So no, I, n we won't sell network. Do you have the visibility over what the majors are doing in terms of building their own systems like you have? The majors are playing a different game. They're after different volumes. They have different cost structures. Um, we don't, very rarely do I compete against a major. Some, you know, sometimes I do. I, I actually find that some, you know, that some of the deals we haven't been able to close, the major competition has actually been not the major, but their systems under like Nice. So it would be like the Orchard or AWOL. They see that they're about to lose an artist or the income of that artist. So they'll write them a really, the artist, a really big check to, to stay on better terms. What the artist doesn't realize is with that check, they've got to hire the publicist. It might be 20 publicists and they have to hire people to pitch because AWOL and Orchard and all these people, they, they're like delivering like thousands of tracks a week. Do you think you're really going to get a priority? think you're really going to get attention? So you get a bigger check, you get less retention, but now if your manager is not a record label, you're not going to grow the value that you really should. And you need to understand that the master part of the value equation is only part of it. But if you grow the master value, that grows the live, that grows the publishing, that grows the neighboring, like neighboring rights and sound exchange and all, and like all of that along, along with it. It's like, it's like the engine and everything else benefits from the fact that it's moving. So if you do a deal with a bigger player and you're not getting the, the support for the engine, you're just getting a check, I would say that you're doing your artists a disservice. And what are the majors doing then? When, when, when you sign to Warner Universal Sony? Radio. They can do it better than anybody. There's no doubt that a major label can do radio better than any indie who's out there. That's the only difference. But does radio determine a long-term career? Sometimes yes, but in most cases, no. It becomes a really vicious cycle where if you're not on the radio, your career is going down. I believe in the next five to 10 years, there'll be 100,000 middle-class artists creating music, making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year doing it. And in a situation where going out and touring becomes a want, not a need, where right now it's a need. And when that shifts, music's gonna get even better because people won't be tied to having to do it over and over and over. I mean, if, like you're, if you're like stuck in that radio thing and then you don't have a radio hit, that's not good news for your long-term career. Where if you're not dependent upon radio and your artist accidentally creates a radio single, great, awesome, but it creates a blip in your career but it doesn't stop the overall rise of your career. Mm. I think Passenger's a great example of that. You know, Let Her Go, Mike didn't write it to be a single, but when we heard it, we're like, that's single. But that didn't change Mike at all. It created a blip, mm. but he was already filling up 2,500 seat venues. 
So yeah, for like a while, maybe in some countries, he still does 10, 15,000 seat venues. But in most countries, he's doing three to 5,000 seat venues. Mm -hmm. So his career kept going up. It was just, it, it was just, a, it was just a blip. It was an accidental single. And I guess that's the difference between building a career in a way that you can control versus somebody else's opinion. Like, I always see radio as a way of, oh, okay, I'm going to just bet my whole life on the fact that somebody else also agrees that the song's good, as opposed to building a building equity within your own control. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, to, you know, to flip it back to Triple J, as powerful and as great as they are, they don't stick with artists for 20 years. Mm. If you get 10 years out of Triple J, you've probably done really, really well. But probably the majority get three to five years. Do you really view your career to be three to five years? And if you're dependent upon that as your lever, and the minute that you don't get it, I can't imagine how depressing that is. And are you writing music to be depressed? I don't think so. You're writing music hopefully because you have something to you know, say that hopefully will make people's lives better. Terry, how big's the team globally? If I consider the consultants that we have on the like ground, um, about a hundred. How do you manage hundred people globally? Um, Europe's run out of Hamburg. London is obviously its own case for, the, for like the for like the British. We have a, our biggest office is in LA, and we basically divide the sort of world up. But the data analytics team covers the world, and then you know we have international meetings, and it's it's a sort of great process for that. Something's happening in Czechoslovakia or Poland or. Netherlands or Canada or, or even in an individual US you know city it's it's communicated to the key stakeholders so we're we are looking for anomalies with inside the data and our international calls which are every Thursday morning it starts with the data analytics team laying out things that they've seen with inside the data over like the past week then it shifts into pitching pri priorities and it's different for every single country. It's like a friggin' map we have to look at. And then it goes into the artists. So it sets the tone because the, the data part gets people questioning, well, why did that happen? Can we do anything about it? So it's actually, it's a really good process because it snaps people out of generic ways of doing things. And, you know, because there's always a question of why. Why is this song working in a certain way with inside this country? And if we can figure it out, can we spread that to other like-minded countries? Or is this culture coded so it's not going to spread? From a HR point of view, what was the first office you opened outside Canada? Los Angeles. So you had an office in LA. Were you, were you on the ground in LA when that happened or did you just handle it remotely? I would say then I spent three, four months of the year there. Okay. And then you, three, four months, set it up the way you want, you move back to Canada. What experience was that like for you, having a whole team in another territory and not having day-to-day -day touch and feel the culture and morale and all that sort of stuff? How was that managed? And Really quite easily because what the way that, um, the way that we did it is we moved people from our van cover office down initially. You know, by you know, very very good friends of mine. I moved them to when we when we set up the you know New York office. They went to New York. Mm. We had people who went to LA. 
you know, the, you know, like London office Mark, you know, Mark uh, set up. You know, Mark's got British citizenship. He has a place in London. He probably spends three, four months there still. Mm. Um, and all of my team travels. And they all know each other. Um, usually when we sign an artist, usually there's two A&R people doing it. Because there's two people that absolutely love it. And I'm not going to pick one over this. You guys just work. You, you like work together. And they absolutely love it. So they've, they've created the situation where rarely is there one creative person chasing something, mm. which is awesome. And then you've got the analytics team, and they have their point of view too. <laughs> are your, do, you, do you set up, well, what's your like bonus and bonus structure like for all your staff? How do you, you know, if you've been asked Share like, options. Yeah. They have equity with inside the company, so the company does better. They have some form of retirement fund. That's and, what they got. And do they get that based on success of their roster, or do they get that on tenure? How's it work? I think they get it based on effort. Tenure is tenure is a loyalty metric, not necessarily a value metric. Loyalty you can do in bonuses. Passion you should do in equity. How do you measure passion objectively? There is no objective to it. It's just intuition. And the unfortunate part of intuition is 99 out of 100 times, probably 100 times actually, it's actually correct. Whether your logic wants it to be or not, it's the biggest pain in the ass. <laughs> it's always correct. So if your intuition saying don't do it and you do it, somewhere down the road you're gonna go, I wish I hadn't done that. Because logic prevailed. And logic should not have made that decision. Your intuition, your passion, should have made the decision. So, with that note then, this is the question that we end every podcast episode. Okay. What is the biggest mistake you have made in your career and what <laughs> you uh, There's a list of them. Yeah. Uh, if I think of artists, we were one clause away from signing nine inch, nine inch nails and we didn't get it done because of the lawyer. Right. Your they, lawyer or their lawyer? Our lawyer. Okay. We were stuck on one thing that we wouldn't move on, so they went elsewhere. I mean, we still kept in touch. We still introduced them to our sort of production team, which was the production team that did the first record. But your, your contracts now don't, there are certain things that you just don't move on. For example, yeah, absolutely. Like, tell us about those. I won't move on the you know, 50-50 alignment. I won't move on the retention. How long is the retention? 25 years. Yeah. And the way that I look at it is we're going to build incredible long-term value that's not going to go away in 25 years from, from now. The artist is going to get it back, and they're going to be able to pass it on to their kids. Where if it's seven years or 10 years, it's not long enough for us to add the true lifelong value to it. So you're actually doing yourself a disservice. And we're, we're not a service pro provider. We, we like put our passion and energy into this too. So 25 years, I think, is fair. Perpetuity is what the majors get. I don't think is fair. And I don't think that 10 years is fair either. Mm. You know, it, it's just, it's not enough time to do the job properly. So there's just certain things of that nature I just simply won't move on because it breaks alignment. You know, I don't mind, I would rather write a bigger check and keep those two, two terms knowing that at the end of the day, I've got people that feel like they're working together. And I think 
when you go into business with an artist, you go in as partners. You don't go in as a master and slave relationship. So if Nine Inch Nails wanted 12 years, would you still, would you, would you still pass on it? Probably, yeah. As I, as I say, there's some things that, unfortunately, we're just fans of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So what about the biggest mistake you've made then as a business owner? As a business owner? Um, I think Mark and I have done this maybe a half a dozen times. We hear something that we think we can sell a lot of copies of and we like, but we don't love. And we still do it and it doesn't work. And then we you know, see something we absolutely love, we don't think we'll do much, we do it and it turns out to be big. <laughs> So it's like it's, it's, it's like the universe keeping us on the straight and narrow, right? Yeah. Like, don't do things that you think you can make money on. Do things that you love and the money will take care of itself. Yeah. And that, that's happened like a half a dozen times. And every time, we, every once in a while, we still do it. Yeah. Although we haven't done it in the last five, six years, which is awesome. <laughs> because it's, it's no fun separating from an artist based in that situation. It's simply not worth it. Terry, thank you so much for your time. That insight is unbelievable. I think the Industry Observer's probably got like four headlines out of this podcast. So, <laughs> so thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.